From Arab Center, Washington, D.C., this is Five Questions. Welcome to Five Questions, a show where we unpack some of the big issues of the day. Brought to you by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. I'm Yusuf Munayer. In this episode, we will be talking about the apartheid framework and the limitations of international law. In recent weeks, Amnesty International issued a significant report concluding that Israel's policies and practices towards the Palestinian people amount to the crime of apartheid. The leading human rights organization followed Human Rights Watch, as well as the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem, in coming to this conclusion in recent years, highlighting a growing international human rights consensus around evidence of the crime. Predictably, supporters of Israel's policy slammed the report and the human rights groups for documenting and publishing this evidence. But criticism of the report was not limited to Israel's defenders. Today, we'll discuss a Palestinian critique of this report and the apartheid and international law framework more broadly. Joining me to take on five questions on this subject is Rania Muharib. She is an Irish Research Council and Hardiman PhD scholar at the Irish Center for Human Rights, National University of Ireland, Galway. She is a policy member of Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, and a former legal researcher and advocacy officer with the Palestinian human rights organization Al-Haq. She holds an LLM in international human rights and humanitarian law from the European University Viadrina, Frankfurt, and a BA uh, in political science from Science Po Paris. Uh, Rania joins me now. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Yusuf. So let's jump right into this. In recent years, we've seen several human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch and now Amnesty, issue reports uh, documenting uh, Israeli apartheid. Uh, of course, we know that uh, Palestinian human rights organizations like Al-Haq, for example, uh, have been calling this out long before these other groups have uh, got with the program. But before we get into substantive critiques of these reports, I just want to ask you about your feelings and sort of immediate reactions to the news of these reports coming out when they did. Great. So, I mean, the Human Rights Watch and, and Amnesty International reports, they um, they build on this growing recognition of Israeli apartheid that you were discussing and that Palestinian human rights organizations have published on and have been working on for decades. So I think that is an initial importance, right, in these reports that they lend recognition to and they support the work of Palestinian human rights organizations on the ground. And an additional importance, of course, is the fact that they uh, show this detailed and meticulous documentation of human rights abuses that are connected and that are interrelated on the ground and that together um, oppress the Palestinian people in different parts um, of historic Palestine and, of course, beyond. Uh, so, I mean, the initial reaction, of course, is to welcome these reports and to acknowledge that these uh, reports have have important significance in terms of campaigning and advocacy on Palestinian rights. Um, and over the last few years, we have seen this recognition growing um, within civil society, by states and UN bodies. Um, so really, I mean, the strengths of the report lie um, in this and uh, as well. 
Uh, an additional importance is the fact that they look at the Palestinian people as a whole. Um, and this is something that in human rights policy in Palestine hasn't necessarily been the case over the years. So over the years, we've had a predominant focus on occupation law, for example, um, looking at the situation in the occupied Palestinian territory since 1967. Um, but with the apartheid framework, we have a focus on the Palestinian people more broadly. So not just the occupied Palestinian territory, but also inside the Green Line, um, and of course, Palestinian refugees and exiles who have been denied their right of return um, since 1948. So this is something that both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International do. Um, but in the case of Human Rights Watch, um, it didn't go as far as the latest Amnesty report. So Human Rights Watch, for example, says that Israel, uh, Israeli authorities practice the crime of apartheid um, under international law, um, but that the elements of this crime only come together in the occupied Palestinian territory. What they meant by that is to say that the inhuman acts of apartheid, which is the various abuses that um, fall within an apartheid regime, are, according to Human Rights Watch, only practiced in the territories occupied since 67. But what is also contradictory about such a statement is the fact that some of the same policies that they describe in the 67 occupied territories are the same policies that they describe as other abuses of fundamental rights inside the Green Line. So we're talking here about, for example, the denial of Palestinian family unification across the Green Line. And we're also talking about the massive confiscation of Palestinian lands um, and properties, which has been ongoing since 1948. So this distinction is not really convincing, and it shows us again how the Green Line has over the years been used in a way that fragments Palestinians and that obscures this continuity of Israeli policy and practice. Uh, Amnesty did it a bit differently. So for them, their recognition was that uh, that apartheid, Israeli apartheid, has been institutionalized and maintained in Israeli policy since 1948. So their report talks about a cruel system of domination and crime against humanity over Palestinians, and it talks about control over Palestinians um, since 1948 and wherever Israel exercises that control over Palestinian lives. Naturally, this also includes Palestinian refugees and uh, Palestinians inside the Green Line. Um, so this is not to say that Human Rights Watch did not cover Palestinians in these areas. They did. Um, but for them, the crime of apartheid only came together in the territories occupied since 67. Um, and then the final importance of the Amnesty Report, again, because it's the latest one that has been published, is that it draws attention to the fact that Palestinians have been calling uh, calling for recognition and understanding of apartheid um, for over two decades. And it talks about the fact that Palestinians have been at the forefront of UN advocacy in this regard. Um, so in doing that, the two reports obviously lend important support to Palestinian advocacy and, and to further challenging uh, the system of criminality. I want to follow up on that specific point, um, moving on to the A word itself, apartheid. Um, for years, as you note, Palestinian campaigners have been uh, calling for recognition of this crime. Now that seems to be increasingly happening. Is that a good thing? Well, it is a good thing, yes, because it is important um, that after decades of calling for recognition of apartheid, we're finally seeing this from international human rights groups. Um, but just let me take a moment to talk about the efforts that Palestinians have been leading over the years on this question um, and to show how this really contributes to uh, the advancement of, um, of a recognition of the root causes and of Palestinian oppression more broadly. 
so what I wanted to add, of course, is that um, Palestinians have been critiquing and challenging Israeli apartheid for decades. Um, they've done this through many ways, including, for example, through Israeli Apartheid Week organizing on campuses, which has happened for many years, and uh, the consensus within Palestinian civil society for boycott, divestment and sanctions until Israel ends its breaches of international law. Um, so the BDS movement has, for example, called for an end to Israel's regime of occupation, apartheid and settler colonialism, and it's done so for many years. Um, and similarly, we have the work of Palestinian human rights organizations like Badil, Al-Haq, Adala, who for years have used uh, the language of apartheid um, as well as occupation and colonialism to challenge um, what is happening to Palestinians on the ground. So overall, yes, it is a good thing that Israeli apartheid is finally being recognized after so much effort by Palestinian civil society and organizers. Um, and we're seeing that today, uh, including not just within civil society, but also by states. Uh, so I'm talking here about um, South Africa and Namibia, their missions at the UN uh, recognize that Israel commits apartheid against Palestinians. And they've done so repeatedly within the framework of the Human Rights Council. And we're also seeing UN bodies and experts, such as uh, UN Special Rapporteurs, who've used apartheid and warned that further Israeli annexation, for example, of occupied territory would only be a crystallization of what they called an already unjust reality. Um, the challenge, though, has been that when we look at the latest reports that have been published, um, and here I'm talking about not just the international reports by Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, but also Israeli um, organizations that have recently published on this question. The issue is that these reports also divorce this con this this uh, system and regime of apartheid from the context in which apartheid is committed. And that is different from the way Palestinians have been advancing this analysis over the years. And again, then it shows that Palestinian analyses are and should be at the forefront of this discussion, um, but also an understanding of where apartheid is situated and how it comes to emerge. Um, so I'll give one example here, which is in 2008, Al-Haq and Adala joined international scholars in a detailed legal study on international law frameworks that are applicable to the context of Palestine. Um, and so this report, which was a 300-page report, was ultimately published in 2009 by the Human Sciences Research Council of South Africa. It's available online for anyone who's interested to read it. And this is 2009, so it's quite a while back as well. Um, and this study uh, looked in detail at the applicability of the frameworks of occupation, apartheid, and colonialism to the situation of Palestinians, particularly in the occupied Palestinian territory since 67. Um, so that was an important study because it showed, first of all, that these frameworks are uh, complementary and they apply at the same time. They don't displace one another. So a recognition of apartheid does not mean there's no longer occupation, but also a recognition of apartheid needs us all, requires us also to ask um, how does colonialism apply in the context of Palestinians and what elements of the Israeli occupation in this report um, were uh, the result of colonial practices. Um, so Palestinians have been advancing this similar analysis, and since at least the 60s, they've been talking about um, apartheid within the context of colonialism. And I'll give one example here, which is the work of Faiz Sayer, uh, who uh, has extensive scholarship on this question. So the overall point then is that Zionist settler colonialism is the context in which apartheid is committed. Um, and we need to recognize that context when we talk about apartheid in Palestine, because to do so um, requires us to understand 
why apartheid is committed to begin with. Right. And, and, you know, I want to ask you more about the limitations of the international law framework more broadly. But before we get to that, I want to follow up on this point. You know, one of the reasons that I really wanted to have this conversation with you is because I took note of a really interesting piece that you had co-authored along with uh, Suhair Asad um, on uh, Dismantle What? Amnesty's Conflicted Messaging Around Israeli Apartheid, which was um, published by the Institute for uh, Palestine Studies. And much of your criticism there of the report is rooted in this failure to grapple with settler colonialism. Can you expand on why this is so important? Absolutely. And thanks for mentioning the article, because I think that uh, it could be interesting for listeners to look at and to, um, you know, just to read some of the additional points we discussed there. But yes, together with Suhair, we published this article in the Institute for Palestine Studies on February 15th. And um, the reason we titled it uh, Amnesty's Conflicted Messaging on Israeli Apartheid is because we noticed a dissonance, um, a discrepancy between the 280-page report that the organization published and what was eventually said in the launch of the report at the press conference by its secretary general and later in the press, co- press releases on the website. So what we saw is that, um, I mean, the report provides this meticulous documentation of Israeli apartheid, and it's based on years of desk and field research by the staff at Amnesty International. And that is really the part of the importance of this report. And then we saw some political messaging that came at the press conference that actually wasn't even written in the report. So the report, for example, says that it does not recognize a Palestinian right to self-determination, Um, because it doesn't take a political stance on how self-determination is to be enjoyed or practically implemented. And then we see the press conference that is held by Amnesty Secretary General um, in Jerusalem on February 1st. And in the press conference, um, she says that Amnesty recognizes a Jewish right of self-determination, and it does so in in relation to or in response to attacks um, against the organization and against the report. Uh, political political accusations that were leveled by the Israeli establishment and which could hardly be surprising to anyone uh, following uh, these questions. But the positions then were also echoed in a press release on the website and also in a Q&A series that uh, that Amnesty published. Um, And then we saw messages from Amnesty on Twitter saying, um, we don't call for an end to the occupation. So we've just published this uh, huge report documenting Israeli apartheid and systematically evidencing it. But we don't call for an end to the occupation since 67. And one of the things that is peculiar really about this point is that And I saw this as a strength of the report, right? Uh, A huge section of the report talks about uh, Israeli military rule over the Palestinian people as a main tool of apartheid. So it talks about the fact that since 1948, Israel has used military rule over Palestinians. So both inside the Green Line between 1948 and 66, and since 1967 in the occupied Palestinian territory, And it has used this framework of military rule as a main tool of domination over Palestinians, which is an element of the crime of apartheid. So obviously this would then seem 
contradictory to say we're calling for apartheid to be dismantled. Occupation is a main tool of it, but we don't call for an end to the occupation. So for us, obviously, the question then was, what exactly is it that Amnesty is calling to dismantle? And why are these discrepancies happening between the report and what is being said publicly by the organization and that we've seen over the past uh, month? So that led us to question also the um, who sets the limits of legitimate discourse on Palestine and how do we talk about Palestine to begin with? And one of the things we look at is the fact that um, Palestinians, the role of Palestinian researchers and staff within international human rights groups and how sometimes their voices are marginalized or um, in this point, in, in this case, sidelined by the official messaging of the organization, which um, essentially seeks to tone down a radical discourse and uh, to do so at the expense of the documentation process that has produced this report. Um, and that for us was quite problematic because we can talk about all the strengths of the report, but we cannot let these problematic and dangerous messages overshadow um, this important work. Um, right, so uh, I mean, you asked me what um, what this means in terms of settler colonialism and the limitations of international law and why it is that we focus on that in particular. Um, so I mean, to look at that question, what we need to understand is that Apartheid has been, in recent years, Israeli apartheid has been looked at, in many cases, uh, within a vacuum, as if it suddenly fully emerged, and apparently, through the entrenchment of Israeli uh, oppression and, uh, and military rule over Palestinians. So for some, this is the cause and this is the root of Israeli apartheid, that now we're talking about apartheid because Israeli government policies have become so entrenched. Um, but of course, I mean, the report by Amnesty in particular sets this record straight because it says Israeli policies since 1948 has been a policy of apartheid over the Palestinian people. And this is, of course, also reflected in Israeli legislation that Palestinian civil society have been calling um, attention to uh, over the years. So, for example, the 1950 Law of Return, the 1952 Citizenship Law, the 1950 Absentee Property Law, and a whole series of legislation that essentially mean that Jewish Israelis under the law have superior rights and preferential treatment to Palestinians, whether they are citizens, residents of Jerusalem, um, of the occupied Palestinian territory, the rest of the occupied territory, or whether they're refugees outside who are not even recognized at all in the Israeli legal system. So through this so through this legislative process and of course the policies that accompany it which is denying refugees return um systematically discriminating against palestinians in virtually every aspect of their lives this is how israeli apartheid was entrenched so the reason we talk about settler colonialism is to really ca call into question how apartheid was formed um is it uh, so so we're basically saying Apartheid did not just form in recent years because Israeli organizations suddenly decided to recognize it, but it has been there. It has been there since 1948, and it's only been continuously reaffirmed since then. For example, through the 2018 uh, Jewish Nation State Basic Law, which says that the right to self-determination in Israel is exclusive to the Jewish people, and it also says that Jewish settlement has a national value. Um, so, uh, which is to be encouraged and promoted by the government, by all future governments. 
Um, and that's something that, for example, Adala, the Palestinian human rights organization, has stressed uh, is basically um, an endorsement of illegal Israeli settlement in the occupied Palestinian territory since 67, but also of Jewish racial segregation and apartheid inside the Green Line. Um, and really, I mean, this shows us again that we need to understand the two as interlinked, apartheid and settler colonialism. We need to understand them together rather than one in isolation from the other. And that brings me back to what Palestinians have been talking about in relation to apartheid. So Faiz Sayer, one of the scholars on, um, on Zionist settler colonialism, as well as racial segregation and discrimination over the years, uh, said in, in the 1960s that um, that racism is not an accidental feature of Zionist colonialism, but it's inherent in it. Um, and this is something that other Palestinian scholars have written about since then. So what this means is that when we talk about uh, apartheid, we need to root it in Zionist settler colonialism as well as Zionist ideology. Uh, so here and I talk about this to some extent in the piece where we say that um, some recent analyses of Israeli apartheid um, by Israeli scholars in particular suggest that the crime of apartheid can be committed without racial ideology. Um, now, I mean, that sounds absurd in the case of Palestine as much as it would have in the case of South Africa and occupied Namibia in the past. Um, but the point is then that racial ideology is central and it needs to be considered and we need to understand apartheid as rooted in it. And to do so, we need to recognize the context of settler colonialism. Um, so a Palestinian scholar um, who has focused on this is Lana Tatur. So she focused on why calling Israel an apartheid state is not enough. Um, so to add just on to her critique, um, the point really is that when we recognize settler colonialism, we start to understand what the purpose of Israeli apartheid is. The purpose being to displace and to replace the indigenous Palestinian people on the land and to do so through a continuous process. Um, one of the leading scholars on settler colonialism, Patrick Wolf, said that Settler colonialism is underpinned by what he called the logic of elim elimination of the natives. So to eliminate indigenous peoples uh, through various means, um, displacing them from the land, dispossessing them. And really, this has been the reality of the Palestinian people for over a century. Um, so this is the context in which Israeli apartheid is being committed. And it is a context that is essential to remember, because if we are going to ignore that context, then what essentially we're saying is, we're calling for some liberal conception of Israel, of equality that actually doesn't include decolonization and it doesn't address um, the colonial nature of the system. Uh, I'll end maybe on one point, which is also, I think, the ending of the piece that, uh, uh, that Suhair and I published, which is on the May 2021 Unity Intifada. So we were reflecting on the Unity Intifada of last year, um, which saw Palestinians from every part of historic Palestine and in exile um, really rise up against Israeli oppression and a century of Zionist colonial rule over Palestinians. Um, and the manifesto of the Intifada highlighted a united struggle by Palestinians in the face of what they called racist settler colonialism in all of Palestine. And I think what this requires us to understand then is in this growing recognition of Israeli apartheid and the, and, and the campaigns against it, we need to understand apartheid within the context of settler colonialism to recognize both of these realities and to work against them um, in order to uphold Palestinian rights and to address the root causes of the system. 
so interestingly, um, we have the first ever UN investigatory body that has a mandate to do exactly that. And that was formed as a result of the UNT Intifada last May. Uh, so this is a specific commission of inquiry that was established last May by the Human Rights Council in the UN. Um, and this commission of inquiry, for the first time, it looks at not just the territory occupied since 67, but it looks at historic Palestine. Um, and it has a mandate to address the root causes of systematic um, discrimination, um, including on the basis of race, um, uh, ethnicity and national origin. Um, so, so this is the mandate of the commission. And this commission um, is an ongoing um, body that is going to continuously look at these root causes. And its first report is going to be published in June 2022, so uh, in, a couple, in a few months. And um, this report is essential because it's going to be the first recognition by the UN of root causes of the individual human rights violations that have been documented and reported on over the years. Um, and so Palestinians and, of course, allies have a very important role to play here because we can engage with this body and we can submit information to it um, and build on the latest reports, of course, of the uh, international human rights groups, as well as decades of Palestinian work on the question um, to make sure that there is a recognition of apartheid as well as settler colonialism um, in the context of this commission's work. Uh, so this is one example of the avenues we have at our disposal. And another one that I'll conclude on is the International Criminal Court, which does have jurisdiction over the crime of apartheid and, as we know, has also opened an investigation into the situation in Palestine. Um, so with this in mind, what we really now need to mobilize towards is using uh, using the apartheid framework within a broader understanding of settler colonialism um, and advancing it uh, to um, to really push for measures of international justice and accountability. Um, and this is really essential at this stage. You know, I I think it's so great that you you noted the the fact that Amnesty came out and said, no, no, we're not calling for an end uh, to occupation, even though, uh, you know, they, they slammed uh, apartheid. And I think it's, it's a really useful uh, example that shows sort of the limitations of the international law framework, because while apartheid, of course, is a crime under international law, military occupation is actually permitted under international humanitarian law. There's, of course, um, ways in which it must be carried out and responsibilities for the occupier and so on. But military occupation itself on its own is something that is permitted under international humanitarian law in certain circumstances. And so Amnesty found itself in this situation where it said, well, yeah, apartheid's a crime, but but we, you know, we can't, we're not calling for an end to occupation because we're sort of bound by the parameters of international law in our work. So I want you to kind of speak just just briefly about what the limitations are in your view of the international law framework when it comes to liberation for Palestinians. That's a great point, Yusuf. And uh, yeah, it's also one that we touch uh, briefly on with Suhair and the piece. Um, I think the essential point we need to remember is that there has been this over-reliance on international law in Palestinian discourse. And so the point is not to do away with these frameworks that we've been using to advance Palestinian rights, but to understand that they are limited and that um, these limitations shouldn't uh, prevent us from adopting um, a more expansive and more comprehensive Palestinian strategy for liberation. 
And and I just want to conclude on this uh, last uh, question, sort of in the bigger picture. You know, what what sort of role do you think groups like Amnesty and other human rights group uh, organizations should play in the struggle for Palestinian freedom? So, I mean, they've already done quite a lot here with publishing these two uh, incredible reports. And uh, I think what is important now is the campaigning element. Uh, Amnesty International plays an important role in this regard. So for them, they published the report together with a campaign against Israeli apartheid and um, and a, a human rights education component, which is available on their website. So what this means is it's not just about publishing reports, right? It's about actually mobilizing action towards effective change. And Amnesty and Human Rights Watch play an important role here because of their international character um, and the fact that they operate in so many parts of the world. Uh, so having them uh, join these campaigns against Israeli apartheid, whether that is through the United Nations, at the International Criminal Court, or through other mechanisms, will be essential because it will allow Palestinians to more effectively mobilize against this system and to garner international support for it. Um, so really, I think it just uh, promotes those efforts that have been ongoing uh, for several decades by Palestinians, um, but it allows us to uh, continue to push forward in this regard. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation for today, uh, but we'll certainly be following up on these uh, developments. Uh, Rania, thank you so much for taking on five questions and breaking down all of uh, this for us today. That was really fantastic. Thanks so much, Yusuf, for having me again. Thank you for listening to Five Questions, a podcast by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast so you can receive announcements about upcoming episodes. Please visit our website, ArabCenterDC.org, to learn more about our work and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.